Hey guys, why don't you go find your seat? I'm going to do a reading here from Luke, if I can find the line. There, there we go. Hey, look. Um, all right, this is Luke 14, 7 through 24 from the message. So bear with me, it's a little full page here. Um, he, went to t- he, went on, he went on to tell a story to the guests around the table. Noticing how each had tried to elbow into the place of honor, he said, when someone invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited by the host. Then you'll come and call out in front of everybody, you're in the wrong place. The place of honor belongs to this man. Red-faced, you'll have to make your way to the very last table and the only place left. When you're invited to dinner, go and sit at the place Yep, that's what it says. Then when the host comes, he may very well say, friend, come up front. That will give the dinner guests something to talk about. What I'm saying is, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. Then he turned to the host. The next time you put put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors the kind of people who will return favors. Invite some people who will never get invited, the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. Exactly sure how the Bible said it, but you'll be experiencing a blessing. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned. Oh, how it will be returned. At the resurrection of God's people. In 15, um, that triggered a response from one of the guests. How fortunate the one who gets to eat dinner in God's kingdom. Jesus followed up. Yes, there was once a man who threw a great dinner party and invited many. When it was time for dinner, he sent out his servant to invite guests, saying, come on in, the food's on the table. Then they all began to beg off, one after another, making excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of property and I need to look it over, send my regrets. Another said, I just bought five teams of oxen, I really need to check them out, uh, send my regrets. And yet another said, I just got married and need to be home with my wife, so send my regrets. The servant went back and told the master what happened. He was outraged and told the servant quickly, get out into the city streets and alleys. Collect, collect all, who they, all who look like they need a square meal. All the misfits, all the homeless, all the wrecked. You can lay your hands on anybody and bring them here. The servant reported back, Master, I did what you commanded, and there's still room. The master said, then go to the country roads. Whoever you find, drag them in. I want my house full. Let me tell you, not one of those originally invited is going to get so much as a bite at my dinner party. All right, thank you, Seth, for reading God's word this morning. It's from Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. 7, sorry, 7 through 11. 12 through 14, 15 through 24. So really 7 through 24. How about that? (laughs) Uh, This is going to be a good morning. I'm off to a rousing start. So you may notice that we have a little table up here this morning. And it's some of our fine dishes are they Christmas dishes or just dishes, dishes? So um, 
I asked you to think about some uh, favorite traditions or things that you do around a meal, whether you're gr growing up or now as a family. I mean, I can remember lots of traditions in our family, but one specifically was as a middle schooler, high schooler, um, we would typically have a uh, Sunday breakfast that my mom would get the day before, and it was a coffee cake. And I think it had sour cream in there. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't make sense, right? Maybe it does. I don't know. I don't, I don't like sour cream. Yes, and it was good. <laughs> so I guess I do eat sour cream. But anyway, it was so good. And we would get up early that morning, and we would get to the table so we could get the most of that coffee cake. And, and then it was the age of uh, the Omaha World Herald and not on your phone. We didn't have digital phones then. And so we would fight who would get the comic section, who would get the sports section. And it would be my dad, my two brothers, and I, and my mom didn't care, but we would all fight. And that was our, <laughs> that was our Sunday morning tradition before we went to church. So who can get the most food and who can fight over the paper? That was our tradition. <laughs> I don't know what yours are, but we're going to read a story, and we just did in Luke chapter uh, 14, verses 7 through 24, where um, we're going to get uh, three, really, four stories linked or centered all around this meal that Jesus is invited to. And it was a Saturday. It was the Jewish Sabbath. And this uh, certain leader in the Pharisee tribe, which is, if you remember, it's the tribe that was the most... Uh, devoted, most passionate, most zealot of keeping the law. And so they, um, and, and you'll see that the mealtime scenario is a common theme in the book of Luke. And here's um, what we're going to find is the last one between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees. And so they invite him to this meal and it's, um, they're very skeptical and they want to entrap him and find something about him so that they can um, get rid of him, right? And so that's the scene that we have. Um, and so just to give you a cliff notes of what Seth read, this is what happens, is that Jesus is invited to this meal. Right off the bat, he breaks a religious taboo by healing somebody on the Sabbath. He then goes and insults um, the guests. He then insults the host. And then he goes and tells everybody that's in attendance, you're all going to go to hell. I mean, that's a great, great invitation. That's a great guest to invite. But that's where we're headed. And it's not so much about, right, the, what Luke is saying is he's showing what not to be. And that's like the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the negative example. But what we want to look at is um, really for us as his sons, as his daughters, as God's people, how should we live? What is it? look like to follow God then? If, if we're not to be like the Pharisees, then how are we to follow God? And so, Jesus, what is your way? Show us your way. And what he's going to do in these verses, he's going to show us three things um, that he wants us to understand, he wants us to learn. And so we're going to look at that first section, verses 7 through 11. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open it up, turn to it, whatever, write, jot notes right in there. You can use the handout to jot notes, but it's good to do that because we don't always remember 
And if we write them down, then we can go back and look and, and help us in our walk with him. In verses uh, 1 through 6, again, we see that Jesus um, is being carefully watched. And he heals that uh, man of dropsy, and he does it on Sabbath, and they are all in a tizzy, right? And then in verse 7, he turns that around. So they're watching him, and now he flips it around, and he's watching them. And he notices that they um, are, as they're entering into the, the, the mealtime, where it's typically kind of set in a U, where the, the most important are in the middle. And then you would have, I'm not sure if it's the right or left, it goes the next importance and then next, and then it just keeps going, going, going down until you have the least important. But they were jostling, right, to get to the most important place around the table. And so he's watching them. And, and what, what we need to know is that, right, he's watching them because he wants to see where their treasure is. And that's just kind of what Jesus does all the time with you and I. Because he understands that where our treasure is, Scripture says, that's where our heart's going to be, right? And he notices that the guests begin to pick the high places, the places of honor. And he says, well, we're going to go into verse 11, what he's going to say about that. But that becomes our natural tendency, isn't it? As human beings, our natural tendency is pride. Our natural tendency is to begin to seek, right, those high places. It's begin to um, wanting to look good um, amongst other people. And what we begin to learn and what we experience in our life and what we see in other people, that when pride is involved, there's usually some not-so-good things that happen in the name of pride. In the way of Jesus, we begin to see something different. We begin to see humility. I mean, humility, right, is what he is beginning to model in his life and what he wants you and I to be like. And it begins to express, express itself by, as Jesus says, when someone comes in, take the lower seat so that if the guest or the, the guest or the, the host comes in and says, wait a minute, you need to be seated higher, then you're not embarrassed, right, by, taking the, by being removed from the high seat and taken to the lower one. And so humility is the way of Jesus, and that needs to be what we need to ascribe to. Luke 14, 11, a key verse, and he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's not something that when Jesus says that, he's, he's um, advising them to do um, a trick, right? To, to, to have this sense of humility. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the low place so that you can be exalted. It's not, it's not what he's saying. It's not a trick because this false humility is really what that is. Is just as bad as that sense of pride in our life. It kind of goes hand in hand. And so God's not impressed with our status. He's not impressed with um, the amount of money we have. He's not impressed with whatever kind of land we own or, or the, the position we have in church, whether it's pastor or elder or supreme, awesome volunteer, whatever it might be. He's not impressed with that. What he is, though, is our heart. 
because he looks at the thoughts and the motives of each one of us. And what he's going to say throughout all of really the New Testament is that he is going to humble the proud and he's going to exalt the humble. We see that in the book of James. And so here's the first point. With gospel humility, less is more. And I want you to think about this. You've probably heard this quote um, many times, but I, I love this. It's, um, so gospel humility is, it's not, if I can do this without messing up. Can you read that? Thank you. It's not thinking more of myself, right? Or thinking less of myself. Those two things, pride. This is what gospel humility is. It's thinking, sorry, of myself less, right? It's not thinking more of myself. It's not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. And then thinking more of Jesus and others. That's a very simple definition of humility. It's not thinking more of myself. It's not thinking less of myself. It's just thinking of myself less and then thinking more and more of Jesus. And so I want to illustrate that this morning. And um, this, is, this is you right here. You are a green glass of goo. <clears throat> and this is us with pride inside of us, right? And I don't know if this is going to work or not. It didn't before. But there's Jesus behind you. And you can't see him, I hope. <laughs> but when we begin to put humility in our life, I hope this works. My little science experiment. When we begin to put humility in our life, it doesn't take away all of the pride because that won't happen until we're in heaven. But hopefully it becomes, well, not hopefully, it will become less and less and less and I don't think you can see this because they couldn't before, but that's the word Jesus behind there. <laughs> so the whole deal was is that when humility becomes more and more of a life, pride begins to be pushed away, and then what you're going to see is Jesus, right? Isn't that creative? Yay. All right, we'll put that. Don't drink that. That would be very bad. All right, so that's the first point is that with the gospel of humility, less is more. So don't think more of yourself, think less of yourself. It's just thinking of myself less. And then here's uh, Micah 6.8, which really hits this home for me. This is kind of a new way of me looking at this verse, that he has told you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? And we, and we remember those two things, but then I think... The, one of the big parts of this verse is this last one. Walk humbly with your God. 
That's what we are asked to do in our life. I want to read um, something that uh, Tim Keller wrote, and it's a little lengthy, so just bear with me, but to me it's just so, so good. And he says, C.S. Lewis, in the book Mere Christianity, makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility um, at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. And that, to me, is the interesting thing about humility, is that if you know you have it, right, you've lost it. It's, it's we won it, but then when we start talking about it, then we've, when we've lost it, right? It's elusive that way. And he goes on, and he goes, um, they, would not be always tell, they would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. That's the quote right there. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things, and this is key for me, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in the room with these people, does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. It's called the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. True gospel humility means an eagle that is not puffed up, but filled up. This is totally unique. Are we talking about a big self-esteem? No. So is it low self-esteem? Certainly not. It is not about self-esteem at all. Paul simply refuses to play that game. And he says, I don't care that much about my opinion. And that is the secret. A true gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel humble person. The truly gospel humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like, like his or her toes. They just work. They don't draw attention to themselves. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. I mean, that was just an incredible explanation for what true gospel humility is all about. And this is that first point that Jesus wants us to know as sons, as daughters, is that with gospel humility, less is more in our life. And so then that lays the foundation for this next lesson that he wants us to learn, and that's in verses 12 through 14. And so now he turns to the man who invited him, and he begins to really kind of uh, offend him. And he goes, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So right away when we read that, we go, wait a minute. Does that mean that I'm not supposed to ever eat with my friends, my relatives, my neighbors, or my friends? Uh, let's see. 
yeah, end family meals or with my friends. And that's not what Jesus is saying there. This is a, uh, a Jewish form, a Semitic, uh, let's see, what is it called? Anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to say because I don't say it wrong. But it's a literature form that is saying, basically, stop doing so much of that so that you can do this more. And, and that's what he's saying here. He says, I don't want you to end your meals with friends and family and such because Jesus certainly didn't model that. But what I want you to do is I want you to do less of that and more of this. I want you to begin to begin to include the people that cannot repay you back in your meals, in your generosity. <clears throat> because when you are um, less of pride, right, with more humility in your life and you're seeing Jesus, then that's going to lay the foundation for you to begin to to um, this lesson of self-forgetfulness and just um, going out and serving, that's going to lay that foundation to go out and invite those who can't repay because you are not living your life with the law of reciprocity. I think that's right. Right? Which is, unfortunately, what we tend to live our life by is that I will invite you or I will do something for you, but generally... Underneath that, there's this tendency, this tug, this pull to always want something back. Whether it's your admiration or whether it's another invite or whether it's um, your approval or I want something from you or you want something from me or whatever it might be. But that's what we tend to do. And what Jesus is saying here is um, don't neglect meeting with your friends, your family. Keep doing that. But I want you to do more of what's beginning to happen inside of you. The sense of humility, thinking less of yourself. Right? Thinking of yourself less, I mean. And then um, going out and being generous around a meal, but at other times. And with people that you know cannot repay. And so going out and doing this with the motive of, I'm simply being generous. I'm simply giving. I'm simply loving. And what he says on that is this. <clears throat> is that when it comes to rewards in the kingdom of God, it's, it is one and done. So March Madness. And Omaha just hosted the Sweet 16 and Elite 8, right? Yep, thank you. And... <laughs> In college basketball and NBA, they have this rule that college players cannot go to the NBA until they have played one year of college basketball. And it's fondly known for those that love college basketball as the one-and-done rule. And they're trying to get rid of it, but that's the rule. And so when it comes to rewards in the kingdom, what Jesus is saying to us is that it's this kind of one-and-done thing where you can do something to somebody, and there's either going to be done for a reward for, from those that are on this earth and they're, how they're going to repay you, or you can do something to somebody knowing that they're not going to repay you. There's no motive on your part of repayment, and you're going to wait for this blessing that God's going to give to you in heaven. But you can't have both. You're either going to get that reward here, or you're going to get that reward in heaven. You can't have both. It's kind of like this. Oh, how did that happen? 
I did that. It's kind of like this. Instant mashed potatoes, right? In my book, fake, not good, but they're quick. Or this. I like baked potatoes. You can't smell it. It smells good. It does have sour cream on there, which I don't like, but you might. And cheese, right? Slow. And a good baked potato takes a while to cook. Sands a microwave. It's not as good. And when you put, you know, right, it's real, it's slower, and it's really, really good. That's what this thing is like, right? You're either going to get this, which is, in my book, yucky. You may like them, sorry. Or this, which is real and good, but it's going to take a while to get there, right? You're not going to realize it right away. And that's what this whole principle is. So the first one was, right, with gospel humility, less is more. And then when it comes to rewards in God's kingdom, it's a one and done thing. It's either you're going to have that reward now or it's going to be in heaven, but you can't have it both. And scripture will back this up. Um, I lost my, oh, here we go. Um, One pastor said you can't get your reward twice. And if you'll look in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, you'll see this principle laid out as Jesus talks. And so those are those two things that Jesus wants us to know, which then deals with those that are, are disciples of Christ. And then, he, and then he goes on to this little more lengthier uh, set of verses in chapter 14. And it's what we know is called the parable of the Great Supper. And this is the third thing that Jesus wants us to know. When he talks about the resurrection of the just, one of the, the people at the, um, the dinner perks up and he goes, okay, so he understands that, right? The, the Jewish people are waiting for this great supper, this great feast that their, um, their tradition has talked about with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets that eventually this is going to happen and they're waiting for that. And then he pops up and he goes, um, uh, let's see. What a blessing it'll be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And this is what he says, right? And he doesn't understand what he's saying. And Jesus then begins to go, listen, buddy, you don't know what you're saying. And let me tell you a parable about who's actually going to be at this great feast. And so he does. He tells him this parable about this, um, this man who invites these guests to dinner again. And he told them the day, right, this is kind of the tradition that what, what happened during that time, that they would tell them the day, but they wouldn't tell them the exact time when this feast would happen or this hour of the meal. But he had to know how many guests were coming, so he would send out this pre-invite, really, and, and then they would all say, yep, yeah, we're coming, and, and, but they wouldn't know exactly when. And then when they had all the food ready and it was getting about time, then he would send out this second invite, right, and say that it's now time to come. And, and that's what's beginning to happen here, is this, he's going out and saying, it's time now for this meal. And what we see in this parable is that there's um, these three excuses that these three people make, which are, 
not all of them, but just a representation of the people that were not to come. And he, um, the different, the three excuses. And um, he expected them to show up, but they began to say, well, they said first they would, but then they said now they're not because of these good things that were in their life, which got in the way of enjoying this grand feast that this host had provided. It ticked them off. And so he said, all right, if you're not going to come, then servant, you go and find um, the poor, the crippled, the lame, all of that, and bring them in to the feast. And so he did. And, and the servant said, there's more room. And he says, all right, go even further. And I want you to bring more people in. And what we begin to see at the end of the story, the parable, is that Jesus says, the people that I originally invited, I think they understood, maybe they thought that they were going to get a second invite or another invite down the road. This is no big deal. I had an excuse. I'm not going to come. And, but then the parable at the end says, nope. Even the people that I originally invited, um, the meal is going to keep going. I'm not going to stop this banquet. It's going to keep going. I've made all this food. We're going to proceed. Other people are going to be invited. They're going to have fun. They're going to party and all of that. But I am, the door is shut. The time is done. No more invites for you. And you can imagine as they're listening to that parable, they're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And here's that third point is that an invitation to heaven doesn't come with a rain check. It doesn't come with a rain check. How many of you remember what rain checks are like, right? It's like when, I think it was in sporting events where if it would rain, they would um, give you a rain check and you would take this and you would go back and you would watch the game. Or if you'd go to a store and they were out of something that they had on sale, they would typically give you a rain check and then you could bring that rain check back and you could get something, right? But an invitation to heaven doesn't come with a rain check. It's a one-time invitation that Jesus is saying, I prepared this great feast, this great meal that all of my children, my sons, my daughters, and everyone that you know, has been in the past, they're all going to enjoy this when, I come, when Jesus comes back and, and raises everyone from the dead and, and takes everyone to heaven, right? There's going to be this great, great feast. But understand that the invitation comes once. And what we tend to do as people is that we miss this opportunity. Just like the people there gave excuses We do that as well. Courtney mentioned that last week when she talked about the narrow door. It's interesting, right? The celebration is going to go on regardless. The invites have gone out. The party is not going to be delayed. Jesus says, all things are ready. I sent my son to take the form of a human, human baby, to be just like you, 
to live a perfect life. To be obedient to death. He was buried. And then he rose again. We have many eyewitnesses of that. He conquered death. And he says the invite is there for you. And all you need to do is to accept that invite. Lay aside the excuses and say yes to the invite. And join this incredible family and the anticipation of this great feast that will happen later on. But what begins to happen is ultimately, right, we begin to come up with excuses. As Courtney mentioned, well, maybe tomorrow, or I don't know if I can do that, or whatever, uh, whatever it is. And the interesting thing is, is that there's a sense of urgency here in this parable. And it still plays out for us today. Because we don't know. We don't know when our life will continue or how long it will continue, when it will end. We really don't know. And he wants to come across with a sense of urgency in our life. And he's not going to force anyone to accept it. He is going to try to persuade, though, for people to participate, to be a part, to be a part of the family, to be a son, to be a daughter. Absence at this table right here will solely be because the invitation was rejected and those that were invited refused to attend. Again, the party is not postponed. The incredible feast is on. And so I'm just going to ask this morning, we talked about three things. <clears throat> and to me, this last one is extremely, extremely important. And it can go really for anyone. Maybe you, you're not been a part of a church in your life. I, I don't know where all of you are at. Or maybe you've been a part of church all your life and have never really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You've never really said yes to that invite. You really haven't been able to put words to it, but in essence what you've said is, well, God, thanks for the rain check and I'll just wait. And what this parable says, there's not a rain check. And he's just saying there's this urgency. And so the question is, will you be there? And so that's how we're going to close this morning. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will just work in your heart today. And I pray that if you're unsure about it, that you would come talk to, to me or someone. Or if you're ready to say yes to that, you will say, yep, I'm saying yes to you, Jesus, and I'm yours.
the first two lessons, humility and being generous. And it's my prayer that that becomes more and more of who we are as well as we lead up to next Sunday. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, this morning, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Dr. Luke for recording that for us, for organizing it, for putting it in a very um, organized, concise manner, God, to help us to learn and to understand what it means to be a son and a daughter, God. First of all, what it means to be a part of that family and then what it means to live like Jesus. Your son was the perfect example for us, God, and help us to be more and more like that. So God, I pray this morning, and, and just specifically, God, for those that are either here because someone invited them, God, and they just don't know you, Father, that you will break down that wall and they will say yes. Or God, maybe someone has been just been a part of church all their life and they never really ever given their life to you because it's always been about attendance or whatever else and never really about a relationship. So God, I pray that they will break down their pride and say yes to you this morning. God, we love you and we pray for your spirit, God, to help us to be obedient to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.